This is an ABC podcast. Midnight madness in Melbourne. Oh, these rallies. Wow. Ridiculous. What a shot. Just when you think you have seen it all. Welcome to the ABC Tennis Podcast. Catherine Murphy, John Alexander and John Millman with you as always. Last night, Rod Laver Arena played host to an epic men's final. Yannick Sinner won his first Grand Slam title and he did it in spectacular fashion, coming back from two sets down to defeat Daniel Medvedev. It doubles as championship point for Yannick Sinner. What a moment. The 22-year-old from Northern Italy looking to win his first title. He serves. Backhand return. Medvedev sits up. Forehand center cross court. Backhand match by Medvedev. They trade on the diagonal on the backhand. Backhand center down the line. Forehand Medvedev picked up center. Forehand winner! (laughs) Oh, my goodness. The time is now for Yannick Sinner from two sets down to major champion. The Corona comeback is complete. He wins it all at the Oz Open in 2024. What a win. The only issue with a late night and a five-setter and the fact that it's our last podcast of the Australian Open is finding the words this morning to describe that win. Luckily, I've got you two to do that. Yeah, fantastic, wasn't it? it? It had all the drama that we wanted and we probably expected from this tournament the the tied most amount of best of five sets or five set matches in history. Uh, yeah, fascinating encounter. What do you think, Jay? Well, what I thought was absolutely extraordinary, we had a great, great first week and then someone said, Grand Slams really start in the second week. And I think, oh, well, that's a big call, but it just got better and better and better than last night that you could hit a new high was absolutely extraordinary. It was just an extraordinary contest. There was so many layers to it. Um, you know, Sinner, the heir apparent, having beaten Djokovic, coming in against a player who he is now expected to beat, and then Medvedev playing as well or better than he'd ever played for the first two and a half sets. I think a real coming of age for men's tennis too because, I, you know, in the last 10 15 years it's been dominated by the top three and there were a lot of questions being asked what's going to happen next you know doom and gloom for for men's tennis but I think this game just showed that the future's bright I think this whole tournament showed that the future's bright for men's tennis we've seen the emerging of new talent we've seen different storylines play out and I'm excited I'm excited for for the future of tennis in general men's and women's well We've got real box office, haven't we? Yeah, the the, the semi-final when Sinovic, Djokovic and, and uh, Goff played Sabalenka. Yeah, they're box office matches. These are stars. And both in the men's event and the women's event, we've got a whole you know, mass of great talent personalities after match interviews. You think the match is good, then you listen to the interviews. They sort of do stand-up co- comedy if... Uh, like um, Medvedev, very funny man. Coco Goff, incredible confidence, radiates, yeah, just star qualities. Okay, so is this finally it? The real next gen are finally here. This is the moment. Yeah, I think so. I think on the men's side, there was so many storylines that came to play and there's been a lot of talk about your Alcaraz's. It didn't happen for him this tournament, but then 
We've got the emergence of your Yannick Sinners. And for those that really follow tennis, Holger Rune had a disappointing tournament. Artur Kaju just came out of nowhere. It really was a fantastic... Oh, the Demon. Can I had the Demon? Sorry. I, I was super impressed with the Demon R2. So, yeah, on the men's side, I think it's a coming of an age for that next generation. On the women's side, perhaps an unexpected final. Not necessarily with Sabalenka, but Jung... Not too many people were thinking that she was going to make it there. And there were casualties along the way. But I loved the mystery around the women's side. Although, Sabalenka spoiled the party because she looked good from the start. Yeah, there was a lot of casualties, wasn't it? It was like the, the waters parted and allow her to come through and win in the most dominant fashion. And yet, even in the closing games of that match, you've got the idea that Zhang could possibly get back into this match. As we saw in the final last night, I mean, it looked awful for all the world that Medvedev was going to run away in three sets. And then there was just this hint of things tightening up and they tightened up. And then gradually, Sinner came from the brink of elimination to, in the end, really running away with the match, albeit uh, Medvedev had run out of legs. J.A., you predicted Sabalenka would win the women's event. When Medvedev was two sets up, were you doubting your man Sinner? You had to have been. Never for a second. <laughs> no, it's, it's a tough thing to come back. But the things you look at with experience is that it's very rare that somebody plays like at that level against top quality opposition for three sets without having some sort of a lapse. After the two and a half sets, there was no way that Sinner had used up any of his energy, so he's fit and ready to go. Medvedev Dev had to be weakening, which he was, and there was just this slight you know, change in trend. And so I thought there was still hope, but it's long odds to come back from two sets to love down in your first Grand Slam final. But it shows that he has some real depth of character and confidence now, and, and that will grow. But it's, Medvedev o occupies a, f a strange area, doesn't he? He's sort of like the half generation. And that, uh, along with Titsipas also to some degree, uh, they, they're getting over, overlooked by Alcaraz and now Sinner, but I think there's going to be a lot of competition between those players. And also, don't think for a second that Djokovic is going away. He's going to hang in and he's going to claw and stay and be very, uh, it'll be a long, long goodbye. It's going to be motivating for Djokovic, you have to think. Let's have a listen to what Yannick Sinner said after the win because he spoke beautifully about his family. I went away from home when I was 14 years old. Um, so I, I, I had to grow up quite fast, trying to cook for myself, trying to make laundry. You know, the first times it's it's it is different. Um, you know, it's but then in the other way, it's it's that was maybe the fastest way to grow up. Um, and um, I think for for me it was tough, but for the parents to leave the son with 14 years old, it's it's also not easy and. They always gave me, uh, uh, they never put pressure on myself, um, which for me was, is maybe the key why I'm here today. Um, I'm a very, or quite relaxed man um, who just enjoys uh, to play tennis and I'm 22 years old, so I also enjoy uh, to do normal stuff. 
This is a great lesson for parents out there with kids who are talented at a sport. I spoke to his coaches afterwards, Darren Cale and Simone Vignose, about his parents. You know, was it refreshing, I asked them, to not have parents putting pressure on him and the coaching team? And they laughed. They said his parents, when they turn up two events they're so delightful they just want to enjoy the tennis but they'll never talk about tennis to the coaches they never get involved but they said his dad's a chef and has the same goofy smile as him and all his dad will do is make sure they eat well when they're at events and I loved to hear that from him and I love that he made that point he was making a big point to all those parents out there listening yeah, fantastic, wasn't it? it? It kind of resonated with myself because my parents were the same and, and um, it's probably why we see such a, a well-rounded kid. He is fantastic to be around and it's great now actually starting to understand the Yannick Sinner story because even though you spend a, a lot of time with these guys around the tour and in the locker room, you get a bit of a deeper dive now and you get to see how they were brought up properly and... and yeah, I think we're going to see more of this Yannick Sinner story unfold. We're going to, you know, explore the depths of what makes him a champion because now that's what he is. He's he's a champion. He's a Grand Slam champion. Yeah, I think it's so important to separate church and state. Family is church. Don't get involved with the state. The coach is the coach. Let the coach coach. Let the parents be parents and keep keep a healthy separation. I think that's what you're getting from from Yannick and it's working very, very well. But when parents try to be the coach and get overzealous, it just spoils. There's no relief for the player in their in their development and, and they burn out and they, they want to reject the sport. What I will say though is you need to be super talented. And he is unbelievably talented. Like it's it's a combination of things that got him there. It's it's very good coaching. He grew up uh, getting some of the best coaching going around in, in Piatti and and now, obviously, moving on to, to Darren Cahill, he's been brought up by in a loving, nurturing environment that alleviated the pressure, took the pressure away from him. And the third thing you need is talent. And he has got unreal talent. Uh, I said it, I've been saying it for a while now. I've been saying it for many, many months, even probably the last couple of years, that for my mind, Yannick Sinner, at hip height, he's the best ball striker in the world. Is The ball sounds different when it comes off his racket. I was, I was listening to a bit of a promo that Andre Agassi was doing and he was talking about the same thing. He said, you know, if I could be someone on tour, I'd love to be Yannick Sinner because his ball just sounds different off the racket. And when I hit a perfect shot, Agassi was saying, like, that's when I was at most at ease. That's when my mind was peaceful, hearing that crack of the, the racket come through off the ball and... and uh, and that's um, that's what Yannick does. It's yeah, it's special what he has. It's a real talent. And it's funny that you mention that because his coaches talked about that the first time meeting him. It was the sound of his ball that drew them to him. And then he was asked, "When did you know the sound of your ball was so good and you were so talented?" And he just said, "It's hard because I've only ever been inside my body." I love how he talks. He's got a real, obviously, 
English is his second language. He speaks it so well. But the way he talks about his life experience that, well, I'm just inside my body. So to him, it's normal to be that talented. Yeah, I well. If Yannick was sitting right next to me right now, I'd say it's not normal, mate. There's a lot of <laughs> you know, there's a, a lot of people that are chasing that perfection, and and it is perfection at hip height when he's clubbing it the way he is. Um, it is perfection. It's what drew me to to Yannick. You know, I was I I've, I've said that story how I was looking in Monte Carlo for a hit, and a 17 year old signed up with me, and you could tell back then that he had something special because his ball just sounded different. Yeah, talent is a hard thing to quantify. Not all great players have been talented, but yeah, you know, you've got Alcaraz and and uh, Runa and and Sinner, incredibly talented. Medvedev, would you say he's talented? Um, when you compare some of the greats of the past, and they've come along in two so often, you've got Elena Stasi, who is incredibly talented. Stan Smith, you know, sort of a plotter next door, but. The, the plotter actually did a little bit better. Uh, you look at McEnroe, unbelievably talented, and, and Lendl, you wouldn't call him a talented. He was a workhorse. He learned to play, and uh, Lendl probably did equally as well as John in the end. Um, and so it's a very interesting thing to have these three guys, and often the talented players don't have to work as hard, but the culture around tennis these days and the support staff have their great talents working really hard and uh, disciplined and getting all the support that great talent needs. And so that's the, the best of both worlds. Can we please talk about Daniel Medvedev? I was heartbroken for him to the point where I almost wanted to start our podcast with the heartbreak because as much as this is a huge story for Yannick Sinner, and it truly is, and he's amazing, watching Daniel Medvedev sit in that chair well, they got the stage ready to present that trophy to Yannick Sinner two years after they presented the trophy to Rafael Nadal when he was two sets up. I mean, Grand Slams are hard. You're not going to get many opportunities where you're two sets to love up. That was hard to watch. It was a different Daniel. When I went out to warm him up and he chooses court 10, so not a stadium court at all, out with the people. And just for anyone listening, yesterday, John Millman broke the news because this is a big deal. I love how cruisy you are about this stuff. Broke the news that he was going to be warming up with Daniel Medvedev. And can I just say, well done for the first two sets. I mean, two sets in, you can take all the credit. Just start from the beginning, how that panned out, John. Oh, well, yeah, the Daniel and his team asked if I could warm him up. So <laughs> I, I did. I went out to, to to warm him up and, first of all, court 10. So he decides that he doesn't want to hit on the stadium court. He's out court 10, which is actually a really quick court. And the, the people are all there, whereas if he took a stadium court, a Margaret Court Arena, um, you know, people wouldn't be watching him warm up. It'd be a more closed environment. So he's out there and I waited about five minutes. He comes on the court. And, and the thing I noticed straight away from him was he was unbelievably relaxed. He, yeah, you wouldn't know he was playing a Grand Slam final in a few hours. He was super relaxed, you know, having a chat. But what I did pick up was in the hit, he was being super aggressive in the hit. He was very relaxed with how he was hitting. Like he wasn't really giving it 100%. He was just going through the motions, conserving a whole lot of energy. It was a quite an efficient warm-up. 
but he was very aggressive. He was trying to really hit through the court. He was trying to stand up a little bit closer to the baseline. When I served, he wasn't going back when he was practicing his returns to that super deep position. He was up on the baseline or closer to the baseline. And, you know, shook hands at the end and wished him luck and then went on our merry ways. I did a few media commitments and he did the important thing and got ready for his match. But I was was speaking to Leighton and I did a bit of pre-show stuff with um, the, the media there. And I said, Daniel's looking really aggressive. Like he's, he's very relaxed, but very aggressive mindset. And they're like, oh yeah, and you know. And then we he starts the match and we could see he was actually practicing in that warm-up how he was going to come out and play because I think he took Yannick by surprise. He was so much more aggressive in those first couple of sets than what he normally was. And the numbers prove it is forehand uh, average speed was in the 130s and all tournament it's been low 120s, high 1-teens. So he was very aggressive. He was actually not going back to his super deep position. He was in a much more neutral position on return and he came out of the blocks swinging and he came out of the blocks firing. Now, speaking from experience, when you are trying to redline like this, even though those first two sits were relatively quick, his ball speed was so much more than what he was. I think it was uh, go all out. You know, you're driving on the highway at 160, you're burning up the fuel, but at, at what cost? Well, maybe he can't get through a five set match playing like that but he thought he'd go and play like that for as long as possible and he came so close and it was such a brave tactic from him uh, maybe it was out of necessity maybe he was feeling very tired he holds the record now for the most amount of time on court which is just a crazy number in, when you think of the history of the Grand Slams uh, in the modern era and so that was a, a, a crazy number but I also think a little bit, and this is why Daniel's so good, he's a problem solver. And he's gone and he's waited up. What gives me my best chance? I've, I've lost to him the last three times. What gives me my best chance? I need to take it on a little bit more. Yeah, one of the remarkable things, one of Sinner's big shots is that forehand across court. And in the early part of the match, the first two sets, every time he blasted that great forehand across court, Daniel seemed to be already there. He anticipated it. He'd obviously, you know, studious guy. He'd studied him, he'd learned his game. And... That was, I think, the first thing that upset Sinner and stopped him from playing his best because he's doing his best shot and the guy's there and, and then he had to change the attack. So that was a, an interesting thing uh, early on in the match. But I think it was a worthwhile gamble. I mean, you know, you'd say right at the beginning because of all the hours that he spent on court that he's not likely to win if it goes to the fifth set. And so he had to go for everything out of necessity. He did and the gamble nearly paid off. Yeah, uh, and he was brilliant and... I think he's also been a revelation all time. I've always known he's a he's funny and he's a good guy and sometimes he plays the villain act in the, you know, pantomime and sometimes he's the hero, but this Australian Open his personality, he showed everyone, you know, it wasn't just the people in the locker room. His on-court interviews were fantastic. His press conferences were brilliant. Yeah, I was kind of in Sinner's camp a little bit because I wanted to see the young Italian who I've known for a long time now and, and kind of saw him as he first came onto the, the scene and he is such a such a really nice person. I wanted to see him get that breakthrough because I think once you get one, I think it's good for the sport. I think he, he can now carry on with it. He doesn't have that pressure of chasing down that first Grand Slam. But towards the end, I found myself going, wow, like 
you know, if, if Daniel wins this, he is such a worthy winner. Like he, he deserved it every much as, uh, every bit as much. Like th- the effort that he put in just to get to that final, mm-hmm. coming back from the brink at so many times, the amount of time he had spent on court and then being as brave as he was to completely change his tactics was something that was pretty cool to watch. And I've, I've, I, I now am sitting here happy for Yannick and really, really feeling for Daniel. I agree. I was dreading going to the losing press conference because I felt so bad for him. But he was so measured. After more than 24 hours on court in a 15-day tournament, here's what he had to say about those five setters. Five setters are tough for the body. I had, uh, I'm actually, it's crazy. I would say the worst I felt was after Hurkash match the day after and after Zverev's match the day after. So yesterday when I was on practice, I was like, damn, how I'm going to play the final, how I'm going to move. But we really worked hard with uh, my, my, my physio especially. He made a tremendous job to, to every time when I stepped on court, I was ready again. And then during the match, every time it was the same story. After two sets, I was my energy level dropped, uh, was dropping because I didn't have a perfect sleep. I was playing long before, so that's, let's call it my fault because I needed to win easier matches, but sometimes it's tough. Love his honesty. Love how he talks. He went on to say it was hilarious. Everyone was saying to him, how are you going to feel tomorrow? And he said, tomorrow isn't the problem, but tomorrow I get a flight and whatever the air in the cabin does to me and I don't sleep well, I feel like I'm going to get off the flight and be dead for a week. And the way he said that, then he was asked, are you okay? We're all feeling really bad for you. This happened to you two years ago. Do you feel sorry for yourself? And he said unequivocally, no, I'm proud of myself. Is he in denial right now? It, I believed him. Will he, in a few days' time, when he, as he says, is feeling dead, look back on that and think, how did I let that match slip? I think I think the final... Um when he was up two sets on Rafael Nadal and had those chances to break him in the third, I think love 40 on, on Rafa's serve at three, two. I think that's more of letting it slip. Now. Yeah. Coming, uh, being up two sets to love and losing it in five. Yeah. That one got away from you, but this match was a lot different. I feel than, than that one a few years ago against Rafael Nadal in this one. Um, I don't know. He didn't necessarily have it on his racket at the start of the third set. Yannick was building. Yannick started to hit. I thought in that third set, his backhand down the line extremely well. He started really taking it on. And then in sets four and five, his forehand down the line was out of this world. Um, But I think given all those little circumstances we just talked about, the the amount of time he spent on court, um, what he had to, to come through just to get to himself into that two sets of love position. Yeah, I think this one hurts slightly less. I think obviously he would have loved to have added the Australian Open to his US Open title, but I think this one hurts a little bit less than the one a few years ago. Yes, he didn't blow it. Sinner, Sinner won it and there was mitigating circumstances of the amount of time that he spent on court. But the philosophy that he said after the Zerev match that when he was down two sets to love, all he wanted to do was try his best for every point, and he would be proud of himself. And so he reduced it to that. And so the same pride he would have after yesterday's final because he tried 
with everything he had right till the end. That's all he could do. He's satisfied. He's got a clear conscience. He didn't blow it. He didn't choke. He had a lot of bad luck on about three or four critical points at, towards the end of that third set. Points that could have gone either way, and you know, in, anything can happen in a, in a particular point. And he, you know, just missed the vital shot. But uh, no, I think he can be proud of what he's done. I think he can be confident that there's every chance of him being competitive in every Grand Slam that he plays for the next several years. But uh, there's a lot of competition out there. Well, J.A., you nailed the predictions. I think we can fairly say you nailed that warm-up, John Millman. And thank you for taking us behind the scenes because we know that's what our listeners love, just hearing what's happening, what they can't see on TV. So thank you for doing that, John. I want to give a mention to the doubles champions, Sue Weishe and Elise Mertens. What a win for them over Ludmila Kitchenok and Yelena Ostapenko, our favourite Yelena. Shame to see her lose. They won 6-1-7-5. What you a win. You didn't mean that. I really did. I find Yelena hilarious. I love watching her, but I love watching Sue Weishe play along with the former doubles partner of Storm Hunter, Elise Mertens. That was a great win for them. Now, we are coming to the end of our final podcast of the Australian Open, and I want to hear from you two what your highlights of the tournament were, both on and off the court. John, I'm going to start with you. I'm sorry, guys. I'm going for the obvious one, and that is Yannick Sinner. Watching him grow up, hitting with him the first time when he signed up with me in Monte Carlo, knowing that he was special and seeing him get that breakthrough win, that was the highlight for me on the court. It even superseded my retirement because I was so happy for for Yannick. Off the court, I've had to think about this one, and i got to say... And I reckon we might have done it for Carlos Alcaraz, but the Spanish restaurant on the fourth floor in the players' area, they have a Spanish tapas restaurant. It only opened at about 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock. was unbelievable. The food was next-level good. And obviously, that Team Spanish, uh, Team Spain and and, uh, Team Alcaraz enjoyed it too because... Throughout the matches, the Spanish chef from that tapas restaurant was up in his boxes for, for, for all those matches. So, yeah, for me, highlight off the court, the Spanish restaurant in the first edition, first time they've done it. Love that you picked food as your highlight and you've just gone up in my estimation. And seriously, you've got to think that Craig Tiley did that just for Carlos Alcaraz, I think right? It, I think it helps. His whole team were really enjoying it. I know Carlos says... He likes sushi before his play, but I can tell I can tell you this, his whole team likes Spanish. Oh, love that. What about you, J.A., on and off the court? Apart from blitzing us in the predictions, what were your highlights? Blitzing you in the predictions? Um, no, I think the box office of the semifinal between Goff and uh, Sabalenka and Djokovic and Sinner. They were absolute box office matches. But none of this would have happened if it wasn't for two elderly gentlemen sitting there very modestly, Ken and Rod. Now, in 1962, Rod won the Grand Slam. He only lost two matches in that year, one to Roy Emerson, one to Ingo Booting, and he won the Italian as well. Ken was the undisputed world professional champion. Rod turned professional, and Ken got the better of him. There was a lot of debate, you know, would would 
the professionals still be better than the amateurs. Their rivalry drove the game of open, to open tennis in 1968. And even though Ken was well over 30, they, they dominated the, the game for a number of years. And what we have today is because of those two guys. The other gem was Yvonne. The, her presence it just radiates goodness and all that is good that comes from the, for the, from the sport of tennis. I have to agree with you on that one, J.A. Off the court, I was lucky enough to go to the AO Inspiration Series where Elle McPherson was there, had to put high heels on for the first time in the tournament just because I was so intimidated by the height of people in that room. But Yvonne Gulagon Coley was there and she talked about her journey, J.A., and how grateful she is not just to win Grand Slams, but she told the story of when she was younger, hiding from welfare, and how grateful she was not to become part of the stolen generation. And there was not a dry eye in the room when she told that story. It was just so moving. You said it best. She radiates goodness and love and everything that is amazing about tennis. On the court, I've got to pick Alex Demonor because... Like you say, John, when you meet people when they're a teenager, I met Alex and first interviewed him when he was an orange boy for the Davis Cup team. And he is such a good person and he has not changed. The only thing that has changed is he is now number 10 in the world. And I just could not be happier for him. Just watching him go out onto Rod Laver Arena in top billing, taking Novak Djokovic's 7pm block buster fixture made me happy couldn't happen to a nicer bloke and last but not least it's been such a pleasure working with you two you've taught me a lot you've taught our listeners a lot you've been so open kind and generous with your time so I just want to say thank you so much to both of you it has been amazing to hang out with you both and it's also been so cool to hear from all of our listeners That is it from us on the ABC Tennis Podcast for now. I want to say a few quick thank yous before I go. Thank you to the executive producer of Digital ABC Sport, Pat Stack. Thank you to our amazing producer, Lauren Borden, who has had to put up with us first thing in the morning. And that is not easy, keeping us in line. Clap for Lauren. Well done, Lauren. She deserves a medal. Also, as I said, you two, John Alexander and John Middleman, it's been an absolute pleasure working with you. Most importantly, thank you to you, our listeners. We have loved how many of you have tuned in. We know that you want to hear more about tennis. And guess what? We might be back sooner than you know it. That's it from us on the ABC Tennis Podcast. Thanks for listening.